have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians. Thought I'd pull a joke and say turn to Matthew chapter 10. And if you would stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In a passage that speaks to me. And uh, it's the simple gospel. And somebody asked me earlier, what are you preaching on today? I said, something you're well-versed in, and it's the foolishness of God. Uh, so the person is a teen, he's, he's pretty funny, he's pretty foolish, but I uh, thought I'd give him a hard time. So let's, let's read the word of the Lord. Picking up in verse 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God chosen, hath made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, and unto the Jew a stumbling block, and unto the Greek foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and in the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence the first hour and the first day of the week. And Lord, many have faced a, a trying week, different, different circumstances and trials of life. But Lord, we come humbly seeking you and your glory this morning. Lord, take your word, hide it in our hearts. Lord, may the, the foolishness of God reign in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them, Lord, that you would reveal your glory to them, that they would trust in you for their salvation, or that they would no longer be tripped up and it would no longer be a stumbling block. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue for those that are in Christ to allow us to be the light, to be the salt in this dark world, to push back the powers of evil. Lord, may we be the bold proclaimers of your message. Lord, hide me behind the cross. Give me the words to speak. And we ask this today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I think despite all of our best efforts, our wisdom at some point in time can be lacking. A few years, years ago, I heard a story of a bricklayer whose work went, and, and, and went into laying bricks, and he, he went into becoming quite tedious, doing very well with this job, and he had a time-saving idea. And he had, uh, was working on a six-story building, and uh, at the time of his uh, brilliant idea, foolishness set in. 
He ended up getting injured. He submitted a claim to the insurance company for numerous injuries. But all he put on the, the claim was lost presence of mind. And because of the size of this claim, the insurance company naturally requested some more information. They, they, they wanted to know more about his claim. And so he gave the following response, and I would like to read that to you this morning. Dear Sir, I am writing in response to your request for additional information in block number three with reference to my accident where I put loss of presence of mind. As to this cause of my accident, you said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust these details will suffice. I'm a bricklayer by trade, and on the day of the accident, I was working on the roof of the six-story six building when I completed my work. I discovered I had about 600 pounds of brick left over. And rather than bringing them down by hand, I decided to lower them down in a barrel using a pulley, which was fortunately attached to the sidewall of the exterior of the building. Securing the rope at the ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel up, loaded in the bricks. Then I went back down to the ground level and untied the rope, and I held onto it securely to ensure a slow and steady descent of the 600 pounds of bricks. You'll note in box number 11, I stated my weight is 165 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise and the jerking up off the ground, I lost my presence of mind, and I forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, as I proceeded rapidly up the side of the building and the vicinity of the third floor where I met the, the, the bucket of bricks, it's where I began the skull fracture and the broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly by my rapid ascent, not stopping until my fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. And this explains the lacerations on my right hand. Fortunately, by the time I had regained my presence of mind, I was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my great pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground, the bottom fell out, devoid of the bricks. The barrel, weighing only 50 pounds, I refer to you again, my weight is 165 pounds. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent back down the side of the building, where about the vicinity of the third floor, I came back in contact with a bucket again, breaking both of my ankles, the several lacerations on my lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me down and lessened my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks and only breaking three vertebrae. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay on the bricks in pain, unable to stand up, looking up at the barrel above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. <laughs> and you thought you were having a bad day. <laughs> I can relate to this guy. Um, I was asking my wife, what are some foolish things that I have done? And the list is long. I mean, it is long. And she said, remember the time you rented the aerator? And I tell you what, I rented this lawn aerator, and I had never used one before. And this is pre-running, Braden, so I had a little more weight on me back then. And I started up, and, you know, it has, like, the turtle and the rabbit, and I had it all the way engaged up at the rabbit. Well, when you turn it on, it doesn't really take off until you engage the tines. 
and it was on this rabbit saying, I'm thinking, like, it's like a lawnmower, it's not that bad. I grabbed a hold of this thing, and it was dragging me across the yard. I had lost the presence of my mind to just let go, and it would stop. No, this thing proceeded to drag me across the yard. The only thing that stopped me was the neighbor's privacy fence. I mean, it was, I mean, I, I think maybe if I was a little bit lighter back then, it would have been like Wiley Coyote, his legs right out and right through the fence. So I think we can all relate to some, some foolish things. This book of 1 Corinthians, it, it deals with the problems of the church at Corinth. Paul wrote this because they had many problems, the first of which was there was a division that had, had begun to take place in the church. The congregation had become fraction, uh, factions into different groups. Uh, they started saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, and the real spiritual people, they're like, I'm of Christ. And um, the second cause of division, though, was there was this polarizing um, viewpoint of philosophy, and philosophy had started to enter into the church, and it would kind of be in some ways kind of like our political landscape today where politics can enter into some churches and can cause some division and some divide. And as Corinth was dominated by many varying philosophers and philosophies, these people started to relate to them, and it started to cause a division. And so Paul here in Second Corinthians is, is writing to address the issues within the church. And, and what had happened because of these fractions. And so just to know in general vicinity, uh, Corinth is in Greece. It's about 45 miles west of Athens. And Athens in the day was the, the, the wisdom, the wise people, the, the philosophers, the golden-tongued speakers. Um, they had golden-tongued orators who were polished in their speech. They were dependent on their theatrics and their techniques, and this would be like a Friday night. You know, Friday nights we go to the movies or spend time with our loved ones. And what they would do in Corinth and in Athens is they would gather around and they would go to an amphitheater and they would listen to these philosophers and these orators speak. And it was their form of entertainment. They would gather to, be, to listen and to be mesmerized. And Paul comes here and his speech is apparently lacking his appearance is detestable to them. His stage presence was less than captivating. His speaking ability was contemptible. Paul was out of his league by the standards of the Greeks. Yet Paul saw himself as a faithful herald of the gospel. And heralds were those that would come and they would proclaim the good news of the king or they proclaim the good news of Caesar and they would go into the outer, uttermost parts and they would say, the good news, the good news. This is what come, has come down from the king. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 18 through uh, chapter 2 verse 5 is, is trying to destroy the mindset of these issues that human philosophy is, is wise and, and better than God's wisdom. And so Paul will remain faithful to the message. Paul will not bow down. He'll preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so Paul's duty is to bring the word of the cross to his listeners by the power of God and to, to bring about the results that only God could do. And if there was ever a day and an age where the word of the Lord uh, needs to be proclaimed, it needs to be proclaimed, is it not today? We need to come back to the foolishness of preaching. And, and I stand here and, and we sit here this morning 
and, and the presence of a church that stands boldly upon the word of God. And we have a pastor who preaches the word of God. And, and so we are blessed in many ways in this church that other churches are not blessed by the expository preaching of the word of God. Sad to say, in many churches, exposition has given way to entertainment. Theology has been given over to theatrics. Doctrine has been yielded with drama. Instead of holy men of God feeding the sheep of God, we have entertainers trying to entertain the goats. More men are intent with filling the building than filling the pulpit. God help us. May God raise up a generation of of men that will be given to the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of the cross, and to rely upon the sufficiency of Scripture and the Holy Spirit alone. With all that as a way of introduction, it brings me to my first point, the tie-in, as Pastor Josh has been preaching on, the 12 disciples. The first point today in the message that I've titled, The Power of Foolishness, is the foolish messengers. The foolish messengers. In 1992, the United States assembled the greatest basketball team ever known to man, the Dream Team, composed of men like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, you go down the list. This Dream Team was assembled because America was tired of getting beat on the the world stage. So we, we combined the best athletes possible in that field, and we dominated. And so as we are thinking of if Christ wanted to take over and, 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 and proclaim the word, and his kingdom reached the world, would he or would he not select a similar team, a dream team, an all-star team? Well... Not exactly as we've heard the last few weeks as pastor's been preaching. He called ordinary men, the 12 disciples, the the ordinary men. I think it's profound because there's a book written, The Ordinary Men, The 12 Ordinary Men. But there was also a book written about the 12 extraordinary women. Um, And so men are just ordinary, women are extraordinary. And so as Jesus calls... These 12 disciples, we've, we've heard over the past several weeks, they, they were not the religious elite. They were not the Pharisees. They were not the Sadducees. They were not of social status. He called the lowly. They were ordinary men, four fishermen, one tax collector, a zealot, a thief, and the other five really didn't testify to who or what their occupations were. Notice, though, that out of all the men that Christ had called around him, they were all weak in a worldly sense. They were without rank, they were without title, they were without position. And I love how the Holy Holy Spirit describes these men in Acts 4.13. Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They were unlearned, they were ignorant. Unlearned here, it carries the idea that they were common people, 
when you do the word study out there, they were common people. They, were, they would be opposed to a king or a magistrate or a ruler. And ignorant comes from the Greek word idiotes, where we get our English word idiot. So you combine the two, they were common idiots is what they described them as. Yet, Christ chose them to build up his kingdom. Uh, when God wanted to bring the children of Israel out of bondage, think about this. When he wanted to bring the children of Israel out of bondage, he didn't send an army into Egypt. He sent one man, Moses. And Moses says, I'm, I'm a stutterer, I'm slow to speak, and he gave these excuses. But it was all to give God glory. And so in every age, God has used the weak things of this world to confound the wise. There's other examples in the Bible that we can name this morning. Gideon, Elijah, Elisha. And so as we take a look at this verse in verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. And so when we take a look around this morning, there's not many wise after the flesh. And that literally means there's not many philosophers. There are not many mighty. That means that there's not many influential, powerful people. There are a few, but there's not many. And it says not many noble. That means that there's not many high-born people, kings, priests, uh, kings, queens, princes, princesses, military leaders. The world looks at three things to determine greatness. Wisdom is the one of them that they look at. Wisdom is, is one thing that the world looks at to determine greatness. Your, your education, your brain power. The second thing they look at is, is power or, or your influence, your popularity, your fame. Teenagers, you face this day in and day out at school, your popularity, your fame, uh, your, your, your realm of influence. The third thing that the world looks, like, looks at is rank. How, how high-ranking are you? We say, oh, this is General so-and-so, or, or this is Senator so-and-so, and this is President so-and-so. But 1 Corinthians chapter 27, verse 28 says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to not the things that are. And so in this, the high-ranking, influential, they are irrelevant to God. God doesn't need high-ranking, relevant people to get the gospel to the lost and dying world. He chooses the simple and the humble, doesn't he? James chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which hath promised to them that love him? And Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so when we look at this, it says that God didn't choose many. There's not many all-stars on God's team. Sure, he got a few of them. He's got a Cam McFarlane or a Jeff Wooliver. I mean, he's got a couple of these all-stars around, right? 
In all seriousness, though, there was a guy named Dionysus, Sergius Paulus, Erastus. These are some of the mighty or, or powerful people that you see in the scriptures or from church history that God has chosen that were perhaps the all-stars. If we are honest, at some point, all of us in this room have probably thought, well, wouldn't it be great if this person got saved and it's, it's someone that's maybe influential, that's well-known, that's powerful, um, that, that would then be able to proclaim the gospel and everybody would believe it. If only, insert the name, so-and-so, the gospel would go forward. It would be so much better. Matthew eleven twenty five says, At this time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Love this account by D.L. Moody. He was getting ready to preach, and a man walked up to him and handed him a, a letter to which it was folded, and as he was getting ready to take the stage, he unfolded it, and written on the page was, Fool. D.L. Moody, without missing a beat, said, I've received many letters in my day where they have written a long, lengthy message to me and failed to write their name on the message. Today is the first time I ever received a letter with a man's name on it without a message. The man was foolish. And we live in a day and age of information, don't we? We could pull out our cell phones and we have it at our fingertips. There's more computer capacity in what's in your pocket than what was on the first spaceship going to the moon on the Apollo mission. And my point in this is that wisdom and knowledge are not always the same. We can, wisdom and knowledge are the same, I should say, but information and education is not always the same as wisdom and knowledge. The world has plenty of information. The world has plenty of knowledge, uh, lack of knowledge, I should say, um, and they have plenty of education, but it doesn't always equate to wisdom. In fact, wisdom can often be learned from fairly uneducated people. Take kids, for example. We can get a lot of information, or wisdom, I should say, from kids. Patrick, age 10, said this, Never trust a dog to watch your food. <laughs> it's a wise kid. Randy, age 9, says, Stay away from prunes. <laughs> Don't know how Randy came into encounter with prunes at age 9, but he says stay away from them. Lauren, age nine, says, felt markers are not good to use for lipstick. <laughs> Joel, age 10, he said, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. And I can say amen to that because that happened to me. I was picking on my sister. I'm like, just give me my bat back. And she's like, Babe Ruth. She's like, home run. Like, <laughs> out go the teeth, right? And the last one here, Eileen, age eight, says, never try to baptize a cat. We can get wisdom from some of the, the most uneducated people, can't we? Do you know that the greatest man who ever lived according to God was John the Baptist? John the Baptist, he says, it says of him that he had no education. 
He had no particular power. He was a strange fellow. He lived out in the wilderness, or as we call it today, today's day, the sticks. He wore a, a, a camel suit, like a camel hair type of clothing. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was a, a different type of guy. Look what Jesus says about him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. It says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. The greatest man who ever lived, he didn't fit into any of the world's standards, but he fit into God's. Can I ask a question this morning? Why are we so pressed to fit into the world's standards? And we should be more concerned about God's standards. And are we meeting his standards? But most often, God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise, the things that are mighty. And the word here, confound, it means to put to shame. The base things, it literally means the lowborn, the unranked, the things that are despised, God has chosen to confound the wise. And the weak things and base things, in other words, in man's estimation, are nothing. But God uses them to bring to nothing to some things that are something. There's a song a while back that says, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody, how they can be a nobody, how they can become a somebody. And so the wisdom of this world cannot understand how God changes sinners into saints. And the mighty of this world are helpless to duplicate the miracles that God can do. God's foolishness confounds the wise. Uh, God's weakness confounds the mighty. And human reasoning would say, well, we don't have the wisest guys or the wisest ladies. Looking at this list of guys, and, and, and we, we, we know that they're, they're not the wisest, they're not the brightest, so in the world's wisdom, we would say, we got to have a great sales pitch, right? we we got to have a, a great pitch. Which brings me to my second point this morning, the foolish message. Not only do we have foolish messengers, but now we have a, a, a foolish message to the world, to a lost and dying world. And it picks up back in verse 18 where we started at today. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perisheth foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And so the preaching of the cross is to them that is, that is foolish. Um, that is to those who are without God. They do not know God as their Lord and Savior. They do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are those that are dying in their sin, that they will spend an eternity separated from God in hell. To them, the preaching of the cross is foolish. This is the spiritual dividing line that God has drawn. It is where he separates the sheep from the goats, the wheats from the tares, the broad path from the, the narrow path, the wrong foundation from the right foundation. And so the reason is that, the, again, going back to the, the cultural context here, was there were so many philosophies that were being given by these people. And this is what tends to happen when we puff up wisdom, when man puffs up wisdom. He is attempting to lower God's wisdom. 
that God would take on human form and be crucified and, and raised to provide for man's sins, the forgiveness of sins and, and an entrance into heaven is an idea far too simple for the wise of this world. God in human flesh dying on the cross, paying the, the penalty for the sins and the resurrection so that they can be saved and that our eternal destination would be secured forever in heaven. To the, per- to the perishing, how ridiculous, how ridiculous, how dumb that one man on one cross, on one hill, thousands of years ago, would pay the sin debt for eternity uh, for every person that's ever lived and ever will live. To them, it's ridiculous. The foolishness of the cross says, every man and every woman's eternal destination is determined by what they do with the person and the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. The word foolish here in verse 18, it comes from the Greek word, and somebody mentioned this week um, as I was studying this out, you know, you've noticed pastor saying moron in every sermon. He talked about these foolish men. He's, he's on a roll with moron. And it's one of his favorite words, one of his daughters told me. The word foolish, it comes from the Greek word moriah. It is where we get our English word moron. It is moronic, it is absurd, it is silly, it is nonsense. It's pointless. It's irrelevant to the lost and dying world that Jesus dying on the cross would pay for their sins. That is what the cross is to the natural man. In fact, Paul says this in in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 14, he says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness, moronic, silly, pointless unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There's an illustration to this this morning. Some of us that are in this room this morning, we were those people. We were those that were mocking, those that were followers of the cross. I can remember in high school, a young lady, bold in her faith, AP biology, evolution, this, that, and the other. And she's standing boldly, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And we mocked her for... for, for talking about moon dust and, and these different things, and, and, and we made fun of her. I was that guy. I was the one who was the fool. I was foolish. She was wise. And some of us here this morning are, are being mocked to this day, perhaps by family members, friends, coworkers, classmates. Oh, you're a Christian. You believe in that? Yes. Yes, I do. And so the preaching of the cross, if you go back to the Greek text here, the preaching of the cross, the, the, the word preaching here in this verse, it, it actually in the Greek is the word logos, or word. And so it could be, for the word of the cross is foolish to those that are perishing. And so if you look back at verse 17, in verse 17 it says, for Christ sent me, this is Paul saying this, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And so here Paul is saying, and what he's, what he's getting at is, 
the, the words of wisdom. That's man's wisdom. And he's saying it is, it is, it is worthless. And he's, he's contrasting it here now in verse 18 with the word of the cross, which is God's wisdom. And he's contrasting man's wisdom against God's wisdom. And, and human wisdom is set against the cross of Christ. The logos, the total revelation of God, the birth, the sinless life of Jesus Christ, the death on the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the word of the cross? This is the word of the cross. Everything before the cross is, is leading up to the cross and, every, and pointing to it, and everything after the cross is explaining the cross. And I believe that this, this book, it is the word of the cross. So people who hold a, a worldly wisdom, they, they think that the, the cross is moronic. They think it's silly. But we who are saved, we have found it to be the power of God unto salvation. Amen? And so that's what Paul says in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also unto the Greek. Even if the world thinks I'm foolish, even if the world thinks I'm stupid, even if my family, my friends, co-workers, hopefully not my co-workers, um, <laughs> that would be weird, right? <laughs> Classmates, even if they mock me, I will stand for Christ because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. We are not fools, Christian. We are not fools. And so the gospel is truly the simple gospel. Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 18, he said, I, he, it says in verse 18, verse 3 and 4, and said, verily I unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So surely, when Paul arrives at Corinth with all these vast philosophies and philosophers and his stage presence and his speaking abilities is lacking compared to what theirs is, and what is he to do? Is he to give them another philosophy? I mean, that's what the culture does. Shouldn't he just give them what the culture's doing? Look what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians, he says, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing or know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So notice, Paul would not bow to the cultural expectations. Paul did not bend to the trend of his day. Instead, as a faithful herald, he proclaimed the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of God. And so the application for us today, in the day and age in which we live, and the culture is, 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 is against the things of Christ, it's against the things of the Bible, do we bow our knees to the culture? And the answer is no, we do not. We speak, the we speak the truth in love and compassion, but we stand upon the truth of the word. We must in our day be faithful heralds, as Paul was faithful in his day, to the word of the cross. This is what is desperately needed in the churches today across the landscape of America. 
We need men to to be raised up to, to preach the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book. To hold the cross of Christ high. And Paul turns next to his scripture to support his next point in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And this is a a direct quote from Isaiah 29, when God says he will destroy the wisdom of this world. And and ultimately, the wisdom of this world will will be destroyed in the last days, right? And, And that's when it will be fully unveiled. But at the end of the day, every person who's ever lived has probably asked these three questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And the wisdom of men cannot answer those questions. Only the wisdom of God can answer those three questions. Why am I here? What's my purpose? And where am I going? Only the word of the Lord can give those answers. Only the wisdom of God can give those things. And so in verse 20, Paul, he he starts to challenge these wise men in, in Corinth. And he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so the wise, he is the philosopher. The scribe, he is the expert in learning. He would have been a a Jewish expert in the Jewish law. The disputer, he would have been skilled in rhetoric and ideologies. This would be probably like some of our politicians today, some of our lawyers. But Paul concludes, God had made the wisdom of this world basically foolish. And Paul says there's only one solution to being separated from a holy God, and that is the word of the cross. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there's one God, one mediator between God and man, or men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life a ransom for many to be testified in due time. And so there is only one way of wisdom, and which is the way of the cross. So we have seen the power of of the foolish messenger. We've seen the, the foolish message. It brings me to my third point today that we're going to look at, and final point. We're going to look at the foolish method. The foolish method. And this is unveiled in verses 21 through 25. Verse 21 says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And again, if if this was, um, if men were behind this, they would have consulted marketing again, right? They would have done a survey. They would have went out in the community and said, hey, what is palatable to you? And there are churches across the landscape of America that are doing that today. They'll go into a community. They'll take a survey of the community. Hey, what would you do in order to come to a church? Or what would you like in a church? And we can put a slip and slide in there. Or we can, you know, rock it out, have a concert. Like, we'll build the church to fit you. And that's not how Christ has given us the example to build the church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? 
And so again, if man was behind it, they would have done a survey to see which would be the most effective way to reach their community. And there's a spiritual reality here in verse 21. There there are two different directions that people are going towards. Either eternal destination of destruction or eternal paradise. That's that's what's being laid out here. The world through wisdom, man-made religions, ideologies, they did not and cannot come to know God by them. Proverbs 4.12 says, There's a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is destruction. This is the Romans 1 mindset, isn't it? This is, this is the synopsis of mankind and his wisdom. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 through 22 says, For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Hey, what God's saying in his word is that just go out and look at the world. Look at the sunset. Look at the sunrise. Look at the stars. That is a general revelation of me and who I am. Yet these people, the fools, when they see it, they don't glorify God. And that's what it says in verse 21. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolishness, or their foolish heart, was darkened. In verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. They became foolish. They became fools. And there is only one way to know God of the universe, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the foolishness of preaching here, the, the, the word preaching um, is the word karugamai. It's not the other word that would typically be used, euangelion uh, or euangelizo, uh, which means to preach in the Greek. And it's not the word caruso, which means to proclaim. Uh, this has nothing to do with the act of preaching here. This is actually uh, rather about the content of the message. That's what he's, he's referring to, is the content of the message is foolish. So what it is saying is this, it pleased God through the foolishness, the moronic, the stupidity of preaching the gospel, the content of the cross, to save them that believed. What the men of this world could not do when all their wisdom is combined together God did. He saves men. Jesus Christ, in Luke 19.10, says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. From what? What did he come to save them from? From the bondage of sin, from Satan, from the powers of darkness. He saves them. He rescues them. And those of us that are in here this morning that are saved, we have been rescued and set free from the bondage of sin. And then there's a, there's a simple human response that is required, and that is faith, that one must believe. They must repent and turn away from their sins and turn to Christ. Again, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that, what? Believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm thankful that the Bible says for them that believe, not to those who can figure it out, 
I'm not the wisest. I, I, I am far from it. If I had to figure it out, where would I be? In a lot worse place, I can tell you that. And notice other scriptures that say this. John three fifteen and 16, For whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so why is this method foolish? Right? I, I like asking questions because I don't have all the answers. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Why is it foolish? And it says it right here. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. It's a simple presentation. This is a simple presentation. And any time we present the gospel, we just must present it in the simplicity of the gospel there's no need to add extra um, things to the gospel. Um, it is not biblical. We must rely on God to bring the increase. The Jews wanted some supernatural sign before they would believe the gospel. The Gentiles, represented by the Greeks, they wanted proof of human wisdom through the ideas that could be debated. In a sense, they required God to submit to them before they would submit or consider God's ways. Such people, they don't want to obey God. They want, to, they want God to work around them. They want God to be the genie in the bottle for them. And think about this. When Christ was on earth, didn't he perform miracle after miracle? I mean, he was in public. He would perform the miracles. His first one was, uh, you know, at the, the wedding ceremony. Um, but then he's, he's out in public. He's performing miracle after miracle after miracle, and they denied him. Think back in John chapter 9, the, the blind man, the, the blind beggar, and Jesus heals him. And he goes about, and, and they just continued to refuse to believe that that was the same guy. It got to the point, he's before the Pharisees, and they're like, I don't think this is the same guy. And they're like, go get his parents. And his parents come, they're like, yeah, that's my son. And they're like, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane. Like, they always wanted a sign. And Jesus said this to them about wanting a sign. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40, he says, There were certain of the scribes and the Pharisees, Answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seek after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, or Jonah. For as Jonas was, in, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the greatest miracle that they ever saw, Jesus on the cross, the, the, the death on the cross, the burial and the resurrection three days later, and they still chose not to believe. The reason they could not believe, even the greatest of all the signs in the cross, was because it was a stumbling block to them. To them, the Messiah would never come and die and be crucified on a cross because being crucified on a cross was a curse to them. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, gives us that. It says, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt 
in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. So to them, their Messiah was going to come. He was going to overthrow Roman oppression, and he was going to set up his earthly kingdom. That's what Pastor was talking about last week with Judas, right? That's why Judas was tripped up so much, because he thought he was in it for the money. Christ was setting up his earthly kingdom, and he was going to be rich. And when Jesus came to lay down his life, he's like, I'm out. And he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And they have passages like Isaiah 53 and and Psalm 22. And you say, what do they do with that, Braden? They choose to ignore it. Or they try to explain it in a different way. And they'll say, well, that's that's talking about the nation of Israel, not the Messiah. This was the stumbling block to them, that the Messiah would set up his his kingdom, and, and he didn't. And so to the Jew, it's ridiculous. The Greek, on the other hand, they, they wanted intellect. You ever been out witnessing and, and said, well, if God just gave me a sign, I would believe. Or if, if, if I, you could give me enough wisdom, and there's some valid points to some apologetics. You, you need to have some weapons to, to be able to defend the faith, right? But most of the time, a lot of them are just there to debate. They don't want... They don't want the Christ. They, they don't want the gospel. They don't want the Christ of the cross. And I'll tell you this. Unbelievers will find an excuse for rejecting the gospel. I was that way for years. I rejected it, rejected it, rejected it. I had heard it many times, but I chose in my heart to continue to reject the gospel. So with the message being a stumbling block and, and foolishness, what is Paul to do? Is he to change the message? Is he to lighten it up that, oh, God is a God of love. He's accepting and he just loves you. Look back at verse 23. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. No, we receive our message from God and we preach the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and that's all that we preach. Again, we sit in a church that preaches the truth of the gospel week in and week out, and we are blessed, and we should never take that for granted. Paul says he will not cater to the crowd. He will not do a door-to-door survey to see what the culture wants and then bend his message to what the culture wants or needs. He says we preach Christ and we preach him crucified. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, that's what Paul is going to preach. There's an account of a small English village, and it had a small chapel. And like many of the chapels over there, Ivy had, had started to grow up the stone walls, and over the archway coming into the door, it said, we preach Christ crucified. Over the years, the ivy continued to grow, and it grew over the last word, and it says, we preach Christ. And over those seasons of time, the men changed, and They backed away from preaching Christ crucified, and they preached Christ. They preached Christ the, they just preached, they would preach him as the good teacher. They would preach him as the good example, the humanitarian. They took the the, the Christ crucified, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the payment for sins, they took it out. And they started teaching of a moral Jesus. And that time continued to go on, and the ivy continued to grow. 
And then all that was left was we preach. And the men changed. They bowed down to the culture. And they preached self-help, economics, finances, how to have your best life now. A social gospel, and the list goes on and on and on. And so too is the way of many of the churches across the landscape of America. They have stopped preaching Christ crucified, and they've just gone to, we preach. We'll give you a TED Talk, how to live your best life now. There's a saying that all roads lead to Rome. And so all texts of the scripture lead to the cross of Christ. And that's what we stand upon at Lighthouse. That's what we proclaim. We pro- we're going to preach Christ. We're going to preach him crucified. And the stumbling block word is the Greek word scandalon. And it is, it is a, a meaning of a trap or a snare. It's, it's where we get our English word scandal or scandalizing. And so to the Jews, this was scandalous. This was scandalizing. It was an offense. And to the Gentile, it was foolish. It was mindless. It's pointless, it was madness. That my eternal destination is governed by my relationship to one man who died on a cross on a hill in Calvary. It was foolishness to them. It was a stumbling block. And so in conclusion today, why did God choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? You would look with me in verse 29. It's the answer. That no flesh should glory in his presence. God will not share his glory with another. God will not share his glory with another. John Stott said this, every time we look at the cross, cross seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, and your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the un or in the universal cuts nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down like the size like the cross all of us have inflated views of ourselves especially in self-righteousness until we have visited a place called calvary it is there at the foot of the cross that we truly shrink to our true size salvation is a must It must be holy by grace, through faith. Otherwise, God cannot get the glory. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast, right? It's not of ourselves. And so for everyone here today that are saved, we are heralds of the gospel in one capacity or another. Yes, some of us here today are called as preachers to preach. There are some here that are called to teach and teach the word of God uh, and to be set apart to be witnesses, but we are all set apart to be witnesses. If you're a Christian, you're called to be an ambassador for Christ. You're called to be a witness. As heralds, we are called to be faithful to the gospel, to speak the word of the cross in this dark and sinful world. God guarantees that it will not return void. He has the power. We have to rely on the sufficiency of the scripture and the Holy Spirit to do the illumination and to transform the hearts And today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation for you. 
Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. And as our musicians make their way at this time, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe to you the cross has been a stumbling block. Maybe it's been foolishness. Know that today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. That you can come and know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here today and there's some things that you've kind of backed down from and being a faithful witness, a faithful herald to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The altars are open. If you would stand with me and uh, we'll, we'll pray here in a minute. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes, I have a couple questions I want to ask. One is, do you know for sure that if something was to happen to you, that heaven would be your home? You say, Brayden, I have placed my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. I know that heaven would be my home with every head bowed and all eyes closed. Would you just give an uplifted hand as a testimony to your salvation that I've trusted in Christ? I see all those hands. You may put them down. Maybe you're here today and say, Brayden, I don't know for sure that heaven would be my home. I don't know that I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you just give an uplifted hand to that this morning? Like, I'm not sure that I've trusted in Christ. I don't want to call anyone out. I just want to pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you say, Brayden, will you pray for me? I, I haven't been a faithful herald of the gospel. I've been ashamed. There's things that I, I've taken a backseat in standing for Christ. If you just give an uplifted hand, I want to pray for you this morning as well. See those hands. Thank you. God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth that is in it. Lord, we thank you that you take the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Lord, we thank you that through your son we can have eternal life. Lord, just do what you would with this invitation. We turn it over to you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.